Monkey to Let Go, the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist, by Leopold Lambert. Today, the refugee camp, an extraterritorial space of exclusion, with Sintu Jandataraja. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Sintujan Bharataraja and uh, he is a PhD student in London studying uh, asylum policies which uh, we will uh, talk about today uh, in uh, relation to the current situation but also the past situation of uh, uh, refugees in uh, Germany in particular but also in Europe in general. Uh, hello Sintujan. Hi. Uh, thank you for talking to me today. Um, we have uh, many ways to maybe address the topic today uh, regarding your own work, I mean, and uh, maybe a, a good way to do so is to talk as well about your the work that you're currently doing uh, here in Berlin, uh, which uh, manifests through the Refugee Welcome online platform. Could you maybe start by telling us a little bit about that? Um, sure. So Refugees Welcome is a platform that started in 2014, late 2014, and it's basically trying to get refugees out of camps within Germany and trying to pro provide alternative um, housing uh, opportunities for refugees within socially sound United you know, flat shares, where uh, we basically try to match flat shares within Germany with refugees who are based in camps. So the organization has been running since 2014, so a little bit longer than a year. And we've so far matched 300 people, so we found housing for them outside of camps, as well as have extended um, in, into nine European countries, as well as Canada. Mm. Um, and so I, I actually heard you speaking about this program um, uh, a little bit earlier in a... In a, in a interviews that you were you were giving to another uh, media mm -hmm. and um, something that came out something that came out is um, is something that I feel is is uh, inherent to humanitarian humanitarianism which is a sort of like um, All, all the sort of uh, contradiction and prob problems that you encounter within this humanitarian process that people from the outside may think think of it as like you know this sort of uh, uh, philanthropic mm -hmm. uh, enterprise, enterprise and and but when you when you get in the thick of it you you realize how um, he it also confronts so many of the so many problems uh, I mean when we talk about racism or or or, um, or even uh, what I what I like to call the hierarchy of victimhood mm -hmm. somehow uh, I think I think that's probably going to be the, the sort of uh, running thread in this conversation mm -hmm. we're, we're going to talk about camps as well because mm -hmm. your your dissertation is uh, your research is uh, is about is about this But maybe within uh, the, the context of, of this uh, online platform, mm -hmm. could you maybe ad address address this? Because I think that's 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 what complexifies really those issues uh, in a in a very interesting way, and mm -hmm. how we where we should be acting as well, and not just like uh, be uh, somehow naively benevolent, mm -hmm. and as we often see. Um, so I think one of the intentions of the project was to kind of like bring together, you know, locals as well as refugees and provide an opportunity for them to get to know each other, live in ordinary setups, you know, where they interact, you know, and have normal relationships with each other. But I think a lot of times you have um, different groups of people with different intentions coming into it, you know, and a lot of them want to help, but the way of how they help is being framed. It, it oftentimes, you know, like it connects to kind of like colonial narratives, you know, into... Um, into certain kind of power structures and relationships that we've known for centuries that have, you know, like coined the relationship between the global south and the global north. And um, I think a lot of the so-called work in terms of integration is framed through the, the lens of development work. And in that sense, we see a lot of the issues, you know, um, being reproduced, you know, how refugees, you know, are, are constructed as voiceless, you know, victims, you know, without politics or agency, whereas, you know, the helpers, the white helpers are mostly the ones who are in the spotlight, you know, whose humanity is achieved through the refugees, right? So, um, and that's what you've been seeing a lot of times within Germany, within how the refugee discourse, you know, has um, 
kind of like taken over in the last few years and has also like positioned much more you know uh, white experts you know white helpers as experts as well whereas the refugees themselves are kind of like stuck within their own refugeehood and their victimhood and um, so a lot of these problematic relationships also um, translate into the work that we do uh, where you have people who have come in with certain expectations you know of what of who they can you know how they accommodate and who they can help and what helping means you know and as a platform we refrain from using or tapping into the language of integration because in Germany it's very much, you know, um, a part of a very racist discourse that has been ongoing for several decades. Um, but a lot of people still have that kind of mindset when they come into our work. And we uh, basically um, just offer them an opportunity to get to know each other and to provide a space within a flat to someone which that person is paying for without expecting that person to kind of like, you know, like... Um, show off, you know, some some trends of integration, like learning a language, you know, um, working in this particular sector, you know, or um, confirming a certain kind of expectation by the majoritarian society, you know, this person's um, efforts of so-called integration um, can be measured. And we're kind of critical in, term, in regards to that, but um, we can only do as much as to provide, you know, the opportunity for people to live outside of camps and everything else is kind of like negotiated between consensual adults Mm-hmm. You, you, you were. We, we talked a lot to prepare this uh, this conversation, and you were saying that uh, no one is asking the newcomers in Berlin, like Americans or British or French, to to speak German. But mm-hmm. somehow, when you're refugees, that should be like the one mm-hmm. of the requirements is to to learn the language, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of the discourse is, is very much based on the language requirements, and you see that there is a huge difference in terms of expectations. You know, like. Um, how Western white bodies primarily move and how they're accepted within Germany, whereas, you know, racialized bodies, which are mostly like refugee bodies, as well as immigrants, um, like immigrants from the global south, um, are um, meeting a completely different expectation. And that expectation is is, is also um, racialized in the sense that um, these bodies can be, need to be controlled differently than the bodies of Western white people, you know, who have a certain different kind of mobility and fluidity, but also a certain non, a less threatening kind of, you know, like being. Whereas, um, and I think it's also part of that effort of civil, civilizing the other, you know, and you don't need to civilize the other when the other looks like you, you know, mm. that's the kind of mindset that we have. Whereas when the other, you know, comes from a different cultural, um, historic, as well as, you know, racial uh, um, setup, then there's efforts, you know, of forcefully, you know, like bringing that person into your realm of things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, when I, th- I think this conversation could probably uh, talk a lot about the way uh, racism operates in our, in uh, let's say at least uh, Western societies, but that may be extendable as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, in the way that we too many times, too often, we tend to think of racism as some sort of on-off on switch somehow. Like it's uh, a person is either racist or not mm-hmm. racist, which obviously is uh, absolutely not the case. And uh, and we can we can um, we can maybe see that in the way uh, I was saying. There's a hierarchy of victimhood, but there's also a hierarchy of acceptability, maybe mm-hmm. as well. I mean, we were talking about that in the to prepare the conversation how. Uh, uh, how a Syrian might be more uh, uh, considered as a as a, a Syrian person might be considered as a as um, a more acceptable mm-hmm. victim in in the framework of of, uh, of uh, humanitarianism. How a woman might be more than a man. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I always go back to to this uh, to this example when it comes to that 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 had shocked me uh, so much in. Uh, the 2000 uh, war, Israeli war on Gaza, where uh, uh, the sort of uh, uh, quote-unquote liberal media uh, in uh, in the West were always describing the amount of uh, innocent children mm-hmm. who were killed, and it's like, why children? Mm-hmm. It's like, why why did their parents do that? Make them any less innocent mm-hmm. than them? And I, I feel I feel in the way uh, um, uh, European countries are. Uh, um, 
constructing their little effort. I mean, we're in Germany, which has been doing much more than France, but still uh, their little effort of humanitarianism, you can find this sort of hierarchy of uh, the acceptable Arab or the acceptable victim or versus uh, the, the not-so-victim mm. somehow. Could you maybe talk uh, a little bit about that? Right. Um, so I think a lot of it falls back into you know, prejudice kind of viewpoints, you know, in terms of like... Um, gender racialized kind of viewpoints you know also classist viewpoints um that are reproduced in in this discourse in the sense that a lot of um because of the media of how the media frames the syrian kind of you know like conflict at the moment you know there's a lot of sympathy you know a lot of visibility towards what is happening in, in syria and um, relatively more compared to other conflicts in that sense i think um Syrians have, for instance, like Syrian refugees in Germany, have much more and much more easier, relatively more easier, you know, like um, entry point into German society by fact of you know of having of uh, receiving much more sympathy, of receiving you know like preferable kind of access, you know, to asylum claims and this and that. Whereas you know other um, people are oftentimes you know much more excluded because of the fact that their conflicts are less known. They're less visible. Their bodies are also much more threat considered threatening, and and I think. It's a similar thing, you know, when you, for instance, look at, at how the, the the bombing in Pakistan, in Lahore, you know, like from yesterday, you know, how it was kind of framed in the media, you know, as women and children being, you know, the main victims. Christians. Christians, yeah. yes. So you uh, you tap into, you know, a similar kind of a sympathy point as well, you know, mm. and you see that conflict reporting, any reporting is never, you know, free of these baggages. And it's in the same way, you see that... Um, in a sense that a lot of Syrians, for instance, you know, like there's a lot of you know, competition within within camps, you know, because of the fact that there's a, a knowledge about limited, you know, spaces, limited, you know, like resources that are available by that the state offers. So a lot of people um, are aware of these things and kind of it reflects back into in the way of how they see how they position themselves towards others, whether it's other refugees or whether it's majoritarian society, and that leads to a certain kind of competition. And I think. Um, for instance, like women, uh, refu female refugees, for instance, are very much, you know, like, uh, sympathized with because of the fact that this entire, you know, like, so-called wave of refugees, you know, is so is so far uh, seen as one that is only, you know, majority, in, in a majority, you know, driven by men, you know. And, and that obviously, you know, like, taps back into the idea of the hypersexualized, you know, Arab and black man, you know, and how that's a threat, you know, to the white womanhood. And whereas, you know, like, um, women um, are much more... Uh, um, are considered as, as, as much easier to be civilized and also like to be domesticated, you know, in a way that also um, the presence of women, and oftentimes that's what you hear in, in, in the German discussions, is that um, a reunion, family re reunions are important because that neutralizes, you know, the testosterone level of, of, of refugee men. Yeah. You know, in that way you can neutralize it, but you can also domesticate the violence that is, that is kind of like produced in that sense like that maybe you know like a, a, a violent relationship um, that could exist between a man and a woman will be kept inside you know between two let's say Syrian people or two Nigerians or whatever you know and that way it, it is beneficial for overall white German society so um, even talk that might be considered progressive like talk about reunion policies and stuff they oftentimes have a very very racist and gender kind of you know content that drives them mm -hmm. uh, you were uh <clears throat> uh, you were just talking about uh, camps, which are uh, uh, almost a sort of um, um, the sites within countries that are still outside the country. But and I mean, we we saw it in a, I was I was in a, I was in Dubova uh, a, a few weeks ago uh, in uh, the entrance point of uh, Schengen space in Slovenia, and uh, I was I was uh, struck struck by, by the fact that. Um, the the walls around the, I mean the fence around the the sort of refugee pro processing camp uh, if I may call it this way uh, this fence was the exact same um, fence used on the borders that they are currently building uh, so somehow we we always we always focused on those um, on those uh, border walls and in Hungary in Slovenia in Macedonia. Um, <clears throat> In Bulgaria, but we don't, we don't, uh, we don't maybe talk enough about the internal walls, mm -hmm. uh, whether by whether through the refugee camps, which are not fully integrated within the national territory, mm -hmm. uh, nor e even less so uh, from the the sort of mig mig migrant detention center, which are very much carceral environments. Uh, uh, 
which are pre-expelled territory, let's say as well. Um, uh, so this is this is very much the core of your of your research uh, mm -hmm. right now. Uh, could you could you maybe introduce us to this very particular exceptional uh, territory that the camps are? So um, so in my research I call them inner borderlands, uh, which is basically uh, how refugee camps are kind of like situated within the German landscape and also how they're legally you know kind of like coded. So a lot of camps in Germany they um, especially you know like back in the 70s when the first, in the late 70s when the first refugee camps for global southern refugees were constructed or uh, refurbished, you know, they come from a history of militarism, of Nazism, you know, of colonialism as well, um, which is still, you know, like visible in the sense of how new camps are being built within Germany. And I think um, when, you th when you think about camps in Germany, a lot of times there's a different language that we use in terms of how we describe them. It's very much like the language of hospita hospitality in the sense that you talk about hostels, you know, you talk about, you know, like... Um, community centers or something, you know, reception centers, you know, which is, which make, makes it sound like people are received, you know, welcomed in a way, whereas very hostile territories that are oftentimes, you know, like um, demarked through barbed wires, you know, through fences, um, through watchtowers, security guards, you know, and inside you have um, construction sites and conditions, living conditions that you wouldn't see elsewhere within Germany, you know, it's a very... Uh, very much a territory that is detached from the rest of the country and oftentimes uh, it, the case is that most of these camps are also situated in industrial areas or literally in the in the forests right and and these dynamics are reproduced in the sense that a lot of a lot of times when municipalities are requested by a centralized government you know by regional governments to open up new camps and provide spaces there's local resistance towards you know these spaces mm -hmm. so a lot of times there's been a vacant places like let's say like an old pub or something you know or an old hotel that has to be, could be refurbished you know and they would sit somewhere in the center of, of a village or a town um, and that could be a potential site that might even be socially sound in the sense that people um, could circulate could could use the infrastructure could access you know stores and have like normal kind of usage and opportunities um, are prevented from it by fact of having a lot of you know like residents local residents mostly white um, mostly male as well, um, protest against the threat caused by these refugees um, towards the women, specifically towards the girls. So that pushes a lot of municipalities to um, build these camps in the outside, in the nowhere, where uh, people are isolated, where there's no infrastructure, there is um, little to do for the people, and, um, and it reproduces that sense you know, of, 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 of being stranded of being stranded, of not being able to access society or even like everyday goods and having to struggle, you know, and especially when you think about a lot of refugees come from urban areas, come from from large-sized families, you know, are, are dispersed across the country according to very inhuman kind of tactics of how you move bodies, you know, and it, which are very much inconsiderate towards, for instance, like questions of family, you know, reunions of, um, you know, like village kind of, you know, like networks, and it, it's splits people in different kind of places across Germany where they live um, in, in, in borderlands that are legally part of Germany but actually are very much uh, controlled and, and uh, policed very differently than the rest of Germany and it's a, it's a parallel kind of you know society which is not considered that way. We speak about the so-called ghettos that immigrants live in, you know, so-called parallel societies, but we don't think about and think of them as natural facts because that's how um, these people are supposed to be. You know, that's how they how they simply you know like reflect in their everyday life. But we don't think about how the state has constructed these borderlands, these so-called parallel societies. You know, like in itself to. Um, control these people also from to control their bodies you know from integrating and and to make sure that once their asylum claim is dismissed which is like the optional or the, the optimal kind of solution that the state wants they can be you know like um in a centralized way again deported so i think the entire structure is built to control these people but to also um to also make their stay unwelcoming, in a sense, deter new refugees from coming, you know, by fact of, because these informations naturally circulate, you know, people know, uh, people know which camp is more hospitable, which camp is better than the other, you know, and these informations flow within, through different means, you know, media means, or even like telephone, you know, WhatsApp or whatever, and, um, and this creates a different kind of geography. So refugees have a very different sense of geography mm -hmm. in Germany than the rest of the country has. 
Uh, um, so, I mean, what you're evoking right now uh, relates very much to uh, what we would call the, the architecture of the camp itself. I mean, I, I don't really know the uh, about the, the German ones, so maybe you'll be able to, to tell us a little bit about that. I guess I'm more familiar with uh, a particularly uh, sharp example of how un inhospitable uh, they are meaning to be. Mm -hmm. They are meant to be, sorry. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, in the in uh, with the particular example of the of the container camp of the of the Calais jungle, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, not only uh, shows uh, the flows of uh, of uh, humanitarianism mm -hmm. as we were talking about, I mean, with this uh, this very very strange uh, as well. Uh, um, uh, let's say politics behind it and how who gets to be the contractor of the camp and this kind of thing. I mean, in in the case of Calais, it's it's a uh, It's a humanitarian organization that had never dealt with anything, uh, anything related to refugees before, and was just uh, was just taking care of elderly in the in the region, mm -hmm. and uh, had some um, had probably some good uh, some good contact with local <laughs> authorities. Mm -hmm. I mean, even beyond beyond that, uh, beyond the sort of. Um, uh, The sort of inherent problems uh, related to to humanitarianism, uh, um, in uh, as we know it, uh, there is a clear will to make it as control controlled and as inhospitable as possible. We're talking about container with uh, mm. <laughs> with the symbol the symbolic behind it, which is like the the sort of uh, Freudian slip up mm. of the of of uh, uh, white French uh, that would be very happy to <laughs> ship ship everybody back in the middle of the night uh, mm. to uh, to uh, various places of the world. Uh, but behind beyond that, there's uh, I mean we're talking about like uh, bunk beds uh, uh, in very high densities. Uh, with uh, absolutely no social space organized mm -hmm. uh, within the camp, uh, a sort of uh, orto orthogonal plan, mm -hmm. which uh, which again allows uh, the monitoring of space, and uh, we're also talking about uh, palmal recognition at the at the entrance of the mm -hmm. camp, which is. Uh, 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 by very far the, the the most expensive things that's been put into mm -hmm. into this camp uh, and obviously the whole thing being fenced as we talked as we talked about earlier uh so i'm sorry i'm i'm talking a lot but uh, <laughs> would you would you would you mind maybe giving us a sort of a architectural account mm -hmm. on on uh, the the camps that you've been uh, studying yourself right so there's not so there's not one uniform yeah. camp structure or in, in Germany a lot of different you know camps of different histories you know and they are have been going through a variety of different purposes, right? Um, my main sites of, of, of studies are at, in Zierndorf, which is like in Nuremberg, and it used to be the first um, reception so-called center mm. for uh, refugees um, reconverted in the 70s to become one, as well as uh, a local, rather like externalized camp in a small town called Weismain, which is like a village of... Um, Less than 3,000 people. It's in Bayern. It's right? in Bayern, yeah, mm -hmm. in southern Germany. And so every single, basically every single um, German federal state has a different kind of regulation of, of how they house refugees. And, and Bayern, Bavaria is like the um, most regressive one, most conservative one, also most right-wing one, um, that has a particular, you know, kind of like restrictive kind of notion of where refugees should live and how they should live there so and the site that I'm studying is, is Tindorf which is basically also a site that I know from my own childhood you know having grown up in camps and this being like the main site where all relatives would arrive you know where we would go always and um, the site in itself is, is, used to be like an SS kind of um, military site where the SS used to train you know it was like bunkers and and and, and um, Yeah, a base where basically recruitments would happen, where trainings happened, you know. Later on, it was taken over by the Americans. It became an American military base. And then afterwards, it was taken over by the German military. And it was refurbished to become a refugee kind of reception camp. The first one in Germany, uh, which also um, led to the Ministry of Migration and Flight to be, to be based in Nuremberg. So that's the um, original site of camp, you know, like refugee camps in Germany. And the way it's built, basically, you have like this really, really, like, it's literally like a military, you know, kind of like um, base where you have like high walls, you know, like with barbed wires, you know, and there used to be uh, like uh, 
old military jets that were literally like standing in the midst of you know like refugee populations and i remember still like when we grew up there and um when we visited you know like to pick up my aunt um you had like people from iraq from lebanon from palestine from sri lanka you know like all kinds of refugees living there in the midst of old military equipment you know and um you've got a several different kind of you know like like buildings in there you know some of them you know like are administrative kind of buildings others are um buildings where the refugees live you know like in bunk beds obviously a lot of them you know, like have to share um share it with several people you know like oftentimes between like 30 to 80 people the bathrooms and the kitchens and you have to like um navigate these spaces in ways to kind of like um still have an everyday kind of like life and have a certain sense of privacy and the Nuremberg camp is one the end of one camp is a camp that usually refugees don't stay in for a very long time because that's the entry point into the system where their fingerprints are taken where they're being interviewed where the case is being basically um, being documented and uh, where they enter um, the asylum procedure and the last camp the Weismann, the camp in Weismann, the small, the one in the village in Bavaria, is one of these camps that is very, um, is, a, is a camp that used to be a senior people's home. Um, it was donated by a, a construction company, you know, after the local residents were uh, protesting against the camp being built within uh, the town. And um, the site itself is um, similar as it used to be, like an ex, ex, um, like an extraordinary kind of site because um, usually there, there used to be a ratio you know of, of a city of let's say like 70,000 people for there to only be like 100 refugees housed you know that was prior to you know the Syrian crisis and everything and um, in that little small village of three to 4,000 people there were already 150 so it was a very disproportionate amount of refugees housed in a very very small town and it, it used it caused like um, local media kind of attention you know and a campsite that also like um caused a lot of like racist kind of you know attacks you know and nowadays you can see that um because of the fact of so many refugees arriving in germany like a lot of these situations have changed so towns you know small towns you know house much more refugees um, the city of weismann now houses around 600 they've had to build like new container cities which have been built within three months and you know it's very fast paced you know it looks very nice and fancy from the outside compared to the old older building which is a, a very much like a rundown kind of you know like five-story kind of house, you know, and that ha doesn't have an emergency exit. You know, the emergency exit was built um, afterwards as an adjunct kind of, you know, structure, you know, built out of construction material, metal material, you know. It looks very, very, you know, um, instable and very dangerous, you know, considering the fact that there's a lot of children living there, you know, and in case of attacks, because attacks are not just a theory mm -hmm. in Germany. Every day, single day, there's several attacks against, you know, asylum camps. Um, these exit routes are vital, to the livelihoods of people and when they're cons constructed in, in ways uh, as as in Weismann it's very much another threat to their livelihoods you know and, and Weismann has a, is, is in a sense it's a much more social structure because you have a little playground in there you know you have uh, a little bit of you know grass it's, it's literally like when you look out of the window you're literally in the forest um, but on the other side you see the village so this, the village is in, in, a, in a distant, but it's it's in reach, but it's still like an, an effort that you have to make to actually go there, to access, you know, like buses. There's no train station in that city. There's There are supermarkets that are probably like two kilometers away from there. You know, like people have to walk a lot. And um, in the everyday, people um, stay within the camps because of the fact of racism, you know, pushing them back into the camps where they kind of feel much more secured, whereas that space in itself is very dehumanizing in terms of, like, health conditions. A lot of people um, come out, you know, like, with different kind of diseases, you know, with depressions. And um, it's very, very difficult to control these, 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 these spaces and for refugees to also have control over their lives because this, these spaces are um, constructed in a way that people lose control over their own lives uh, which pushes for instance a lot of people also to consider returning so the um, so in the last few weeks we've had a lot of cases of, of Iraqis um, Iraqi refugees um, returning so-called voluntarily to um, Iraq considering the fact that they've experienced racism by both um, races you know like skinheads for instance um, who attack camps, but also security guards. So a lot of the um, the camps that are um, that used to be run state run are now much more privatized. So you have 
either charities or private, you know, like companies running uh, running these these camps, and they hire um, private, you know, security firms. They hire um, caterers, you know, cleaners and stuff. And there's no way of refugees actually engaging with the site in itself. They can't clean their own site in the same. They can't cook for themselves. You know, everything is very much being micromanaged and macromanaged by others. And a lot of times, you know, the people who are working in these camps are resentful towards these people as well. So you have um, the external violence that um, is kind of constructed through society at large and where the camp is embedded in, but then also the the violence kind of like replicating through um, the architecture as well as the people who are hired to maintain the camp. I think... um, that camp, that particular site in Weisman, for instance, is one of these camps that people stay in for a much longer period, which is like this, this step when they move from camps to social housing. So that's probably like around six months to two years sometimes. So it's a space where people um, settle where they negotiate a space very differently to a space in Zindorf. Yeah. Zindorf is very temporary, even though temporary sometimes means for some people, you know, weeks or months, right? And in that sense, like, you, there's not a singular kind of, like, narrative that comes out of it, but there's a particular kind of pattern that you can trace in terms of how camp experiences evolve throughout time. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about this topic, we, we usually... Um, we usually think of it in terms of not doing enough, not uh, acknowledging the complications, the difficulties. But at the end of the day, I'm wondering if we are not looking at it in a in a. When I say we, I mean like people who are who read the newspaper and are vaguely pretending to be interested in the topic. Um, uh, we're if we're not looking at the topic in the wrong way, in so far that. It's much less about what we should do than what we should actively not do, meaning every struggle right now that a refugee in Europe might have is because, obviously, of a, a very tortured uh, situation back mm-hmm. home, but uh, but very much because of um, obstacles that's been mm-hmm. very voluntarily uh, put in, the, in their way by the different uh, European governments and, and the societies they represent. Uh, uh, but so I'm wondering if if maybe if we change the the sort of imaginary to it and start to talk about actively not doing, mm-hmm. which is we're phrasing, I suppose. Yeah. But uh, uh, we would not, we would not, we would maybe uh, uh, go there in a maybe at least in a more politicized. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I mean, when when again, like if I go back to Calais, uh, what's the most over overwhelming thing there? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, at least if you have a sort of political reading of the situation, is much less uh, the sort of uh, spectacular misery of of the uh, uh, of the houses you see around you, the shelters and everything, but much more the absolute ubiquity of the French police mm-hmm. all around and the walls and the barbed wires and the bulldozers and mm-hmm. all, and those things are actually uh, you know they're they're paid like they're mm-hmm. they're asked to be there. I mean the the. The the the, pol- the police officers are actually tired mm-hmm. <laughs> to be there because they've been working so much, uh, 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 and uh, and so I don't know. Would you agree to that that we, we should act? We should we should argue for an active not doing like that. It's it's mm-hmm. almost a sort of cynical position here. I I I I, I want to acknowledge that, but it's uh, but somehow by not by actively not doing, mm-hmm. we would be already closer to giving proper conditions for hospitality wouldn't we? I, I think so, I think that special treatment that is kind of like uh, vetted out to refugees it often positions them in, in, in positions where they have to be become victims, you know, in itself and also where they can't escape that victimhood and I think um, when we think about you know refugee movements, when we think about them historically we see that there's been several refugee movements, you know, for um, decades that have not been taken into account, you know, like the knowledge, the skills, the experiences um, that have come out of these, ex- you know, these, these these histories have never been used, really, you know, and a lot of these histories could, you know, like be used in a way to actually, like, um, learn from mistakes that have been committed towards other people and try to avoid doing them to people who arrive these days, you know, and I think... Um, 
that's not being done in most places where um, I think that has to do with the fact that refugees in the South can't speak for themselves, whether they're old refugees or new refugees. There's always someone who speaks for them. It's that question of the subaltern again and how um, we cannot fathom for there to be analytical kind of knowledge coming out of people who've experience a certain thing you know for them to find structural solutions to the issues that affect them but we need to have external people you know like actually like building a narrative about people but without these people you know and i think um in many ways we we could improve the way of how refugees you know experience their arrival here if we would step back you know if we would you know like loosen these tracks that we've built that refugees need to walk in order to arrive, you know. And I think if we treat them without specific, you know, like kind of um, arrangement, for instance, like work prohibitions, you know, or mobility re restrictions, you know, and without encamping them, you know, I think that provides them a way of having, of building sustainable, you know, autonomous kind of livelihoods that are built around their needs and not the needs of society as a, as a whole or the expectations of a society. And I think, um, so in that sense, I do agree that we need to do less in the sense that, the structures need to kind of like pull back and need to like also um, acknowledge the fact that these are fully realized people, you know, with with decision-making power, you know, and with history, with, with political kind of ambitions, you know. With, with expertise. With expertise, yeah. And um, who managed to live their lives before they became refugees and they can manage to live their lives after they became refugees too. And, um, and I think that's an acknowledgement that hasn't been made. And I think... Um, it roots back to it in, in that um, dismissal of people with, who have made particular experience, who are pushed into a particular position, speaking for themselves, uh, which is something that I also um, consider very um, important to my own research in, 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 in the sense that these aren't like external experiences that I am studying, but these are really ex experiences of that I've lived through in my own body, but also through the community that I come from. And in that sense, it, it gives you a completely different relationship towards um, what is happening as well as towards the people who are affected these days. But it also um, enables you to um, connect with these people in very different ways. So the, the power hierarchy is still there because of the fact that I, for instance, like have a German passport. I speak the language fluently. I've been socialized here. But... There's a point of um, a meeting point that comes through that experience, and that relates, and that helps you relate to these people differently, or but it also helps current refugees to relate to you differently in terms of like um, how you might be able to help them, how you might be able to kind of like be a role model for them, how you might be able to um, open up networks that are a sense of understanding that people who haven't been through these experiences can't really access it. Because acts and because they haven't been put in that situation where they've had to make these negotiations in every day. And I think um, so. In that sense, I feel like my research is kind of like building on that uh, on that viewpoint. But I think um, overall, I think there needs to be a shift in terms of how these discuss discussions are led and what that means for the structures that refugees experience in every day. Mm -hmm. Well, and precisely drawing on that uh, and going to. Uh an article you've been writing for a Jacobin um, mm -hmm. uh, magazine uh, where you you very much uh, um, give an account of uh, of your your mother's uh, uh, own um, um, path mm -hmm. through those uh, those obstacles we just mm -hmm. we just talked about in the 1980s um, I I'd be interested to talk about how um, Uh, we talked about how you, people involved in humanitarianism mm -hmm. and people who wants to help and everything might very well be within uh, acting within a racist logics. Mm -hmm. I, I also want to um, to talk about how similarly the let's say let's call it the white left uh, mm -hmm. uh, is very much uh, within those logics as well mm -hmm. in in how they necessarily think of this moment as a exceptional racism. Mm -hmm. When actually, when we read, I read your article, I realize that well, this mm. this racism and those those sort of demagogic uh, imaginaries that are being uh, forced upon the 
refugee bodies mm -hmm. have been existing for for quite a long time and somehow you're we're not helping anybody to say that this time it's particularly special mm -hmm. uh you know donald trump is at the gates and mm -hmm. <laughs> all those things it's not helping anyone to 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 make up this time an exceptional mm -hmm. an exceptional time and to acknowledge that racism has been acting uh for for many many years in at a structural level yeah I think um, there's a collective amnesia that exists, I think, in different societies, you know, where um, we kind of, you know, like erase travel periods or periods, you know, of challenges um, in, in, a, in a way that we don't learn from these histories, you know, we just, you know, like push them somewhere into archives and then pretend, you know, experience something novel. And I think when you look back at the policies in the 80s, you know, and you think about how the public reacted towards uh, refugee bodies arriving, you know, it's very, very similar. And I think... Um, There's, there's so much that we haven't learned that you can really literally read out of it. And I think um, that exceptionalism that people now read in, 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 in terms of like what is happening right now, I mean, in terms of numbers, yes, I think there is a, it's, it makes a stark difference if, if there's like hundreds of thousands of people you know, arriving compared to, you know, let's say, like at most 100,000, you know. And um, so it challenges the structures differently, you know. But I, I do think that overall, I think the way of how society and the state respond to these issues is very very similar and it falls into a historic pattern that uh, we've seen throughout you know in the, when when the Kosovo you know, crisis you know er erupted or uh, when the war in Sri Lanka you know like started or um, it, when Palestinian refugees arrived when Lebanese refugees arrived you had very very similar patterns to what we're seeing right now in terms of um, Syrian you know Iraqi um, Eritrean refugees arriving and I think um, That historic sense of amnesia is um, very much, you know, like at the expenses of a lot of people, you know, like who who've been through these experiences, but also who are going through these experiences at this very moment. And um, if we would position the current context in a history of violences, you know, enough of encounters, um, then we would probably react very differently. You know, we would be probably wiser in our actions. You know, we wouldn't. Um, consider this as, a, as a exceptional, you know, or the racism as exceptional. We would think of it as more as the everyday and the fact that um, the numbers have been um, deflated in Germany for such a long time is based on the fact that Germany has so artfully outsourced the border over, you know, decades, you know, to towards, you know, the east and the south, the southern um, European borders, you know, and Germany was um, for such a long time insistent on... Um, Or not sharing the burden, the so-called burden that, that Italy and um, Greece were complaining about uh, for several years now. And now that suddenly Germany has been affected, that, that Italy and, and, and Greece have uh, succumbed to the numbers of people arriving and have basically... Um, deactivated Schengen in itself or and um, the border regime... Um, Germany has, is seeing numbers that are very similar in a way towards the numbers that we've seen in the 90s. In the 90s, we've seen a similar reaction in terms of the rise of, you know, of, but that has also happened in the 80s, but in, in the 90s, there was an exceptional kind of rise of um, um, anti-refugee and racist violence, you know, and that has been a continuous kind of threat that you could see throughout the 90s to the 2000s, but now in the 2010s, you know, you see um, that this is the everyday in a way that ha has never been, But it's always being told as if it would be a history that was a history that was completely novel to this landscape, you know. And I think um, that sense of, you know, not having a historical consciousness is uh, a threat to all of us mm. um, because it also connects us, you know, to a historical consciousness of what happened in the 1930s, you know, what happened in other periods, you know. And it leaves us, you know, very vulnerable um, to slipping into times, you know, that might be very hostile for many of us you know so um i would wish there to be a much more you know like conscious kind of engagement with what we've done in history and what we've experienced uh, throughout the years and what knowledge came out of that you know because the knowledge that we today see is very much divorced from everything that has happened since you know post-colonial periods in germany mm -hmm. uh maybe as a final question uh i'd like to ask you a question for architecture students because I'm following a few who are uh, interested in those questions and have a lot of energy to um, spend in researching 
the question of the camps, for example, and but also wants to get involved into uh, design because that's a sort of the architect's pathology, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and um, and somehow the uh, but it's very. Inter- I mean, the students I'm following are, are very very smart, so they're realizing as as a, uh, in their position uh, that they're. Um, they're in front of something they don't know. I mean, they're they're shaking, mm-hmm. they're trembling to the idea that they would actually design something mm-hmm. because they understand all the problematic aspect to it. Mm-hmm. And with one of them recently, I've been, um, we've been we've been drawing the conclusion that as as white architects, there was absolutely nothing we could mm-hmm. do, uh, which didn't mean that we could not get involved into mm-hmm. something, but as uh, "Quote unquote," the architect. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 let's and, uh, and you know, obviously, architecture students have to put themselves in the position mm-hmm. of the of the, the sort of decision makers, and, uh, and and we. It's it sounds like a very a very uh, a defeating uh, uh, position for mm-hmm. many for many people. I'm sure and many people would be quite angry uh, at this position. But uh, to me, it seems it seems like maybe the beginning of of, of something. Uh, quite interesting in in the sort of decolonizing process mm-hmm. within it. Could you could you maybe almost like address them? <laughs> right. Um, so I think one of the issues in planning and stuff when you look at camps, I think, is that the consultation process doesn't consult the people who are affected by it. Mm-hmm. I think, um, and that's what you see in a lot of you know development works when bridges are built, when dams are built, and this and that. You see a lot of you know there's some efforts you know to consult local populations, but not in when it comes to camps. You know, like to people like what would they want to see? You know, and um, and obviously in terms of you know like administrating a certain kind of people, I think a camp can be from a structural level, from a governmental level, it can be very useful. But then the fact that, for instance, like Germany is a welfare state. You know, is a is a state that has a history you know of social housing of strong social housing you know of of, of um providing you know socially weak population groups you know like beneficial kind of arrangements uh, for them to not consult um refugees or you know in in terms of like how the the, the living spaces they should supposed are supposed to live in should look like i think it's something that a lot of like architectural students or you know current architects you know, need to consider more you know like what is it like you know what does that really mean if you come to a country you know, and you arrive there and you, you first of all live in, in, in constellations that you've never encountered in your life, with people that you've never encountered in your life, and in, in, a, in a country that you've never been. I think a lot of the things that, for instance, that I study are the everyday politics, and the everyday politics is the way of how you arrange your, the kitchen, you know, how you, um, how you create a, a cooking schedule, you know, or how you rearrange, you know, a cleaning schedule for bathrooms, you know, or... Um, how you um, rearrange a room or a sleeping situations, you know. And I think uh, a lot of things that a lot of refugees complain about is, first of all, the conditions of the um, of the items that are available, you know, like from windows to, you know, kitchen and utensils to um, the privacy, like lack of privacy, you know, and the lack of dignity. And I think that's what needs to be considered, you know, like how would you want to live, you know, would you want to live in a space like that? And I think could you imagine living a life, you know, uh, full of dignity in a space. And I think that's a question that everyone needs to ask themselves, irrespective of who we are, but especially if you are part of the planning process and um, whether you could see yourself, you know, like living a dignified life. And I think in part of the German constitution, ironically, is um, that the dignity of a person should not, it should remain untouched, you know. And that's everything that Germany is not doing right now because the dignity of refugees is completely being eroded, you know, and it is non-existent. And um, so in that sense, I think that's, as an, someone who's not an architect, is something that I, I would really like to see much more in, to be considered, you know, like, because um, I think a lot of times we externalize the thought process, we wouldn't see ourselves there, but we could imagine other people there, but then the process should really be like, why can't I see myself in there? Because I wouldn't feel comfortable. So if I don't feel comfortable there, why should that other person feel comfortable, right? And I think that's a question of um, including people, but also thinking about them as equal humans you know not not humans who have a different legal status but humans and i think um that's what i would like to see more you know when it comes to um designing you know like um spaces for refugees to live in you know Mm -hmm. but um at work we argue for decentralized housing so that just means we want to see like social housing rising we don't want to see camps you know we don't want to be camps to be rethought or refurbished and we want camps to be dismantled as a whole 
you know we want to think about um alternative means of housing that do not that correspond to how social housing works you know to um provide spaces within ordinary flats you know and, and provide you know um flats in itself also to people you know within an existing infrastructure that majoritarian society also accesses you know so um maybe I personally would argue for an entire, you know, like <laughs> abolition of the camp, not a renewal, not a reinterpretation of the camp, a full, you know, like um, abolition. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, what a lot of us who've been through camps would argue as well. Yeah, and I, I, I'm sorry because I, I should I should have nuanced uh, and precise a little bit more what what I meant because I didn't mean uh, first of all I, I I said I said that as if I was addressing only uh, mm. white architecture students, oh. which. Uh, 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 is much more complex than that, even mm. though, uh, let's say, uh, white architects combines two positions of, uh, of domination in, mm. in society. But again, being an architect is already uh, a sort of being at the command of a, of a very powerful instrument of domination. So that's also what I meant. But I think the people I was referring to are completely convinced right. that there should not be designing a better camp yeah. or something like that but they're more looking at solutions that you're you're addressing but even even then i feel that there is a very very um uh there needs to be a very very strong awareness mm -hmm. of what uh, of what's being done and i also want to say we were talking about how uh, pe people will arrive in those uh, very dire situations Have expertise. I mean, some mm. of them are architects as well. So, yeah. I mean, why why aren't we talking about that? Mm. Why? And they've also like lived in camps before that, right? Yeah. And they've they've come from different camps from outside, and but and they always put the camps that they live in in Europe, for instance, in a linear connection to the camps they've lived in, let's say somewhere in Kenya or somewhere you know in Pakistan or Afghanistan or something, right? And I think um, that should make us question, you know, like we because we always you know attach image of the camp and refuge to the global south you know these tent cities and all these these places you know there's a destitute you know that are in need for our humanitarian un whatever kind of um aid you know um and once these camps arrive here i think um that shock level of what has happened you know like how is it that we are not so different you know and how is it that these issues have suddenly arrived at our doorstep and we can't manage them better Than the people in these impoverished, you know, countries, you know, I think that's something that shocks a lot of people and also paralyzes, you know, a lot of, a lot of these structures. And the emergency has never been emergent because that's the status quo. And the status quo is not the exception; it's the everyday, you know, for so many people. And I think, um, yeah, I think I think for a lot of um, a lot of people basically who've been through the experience who come as architects, you know, as, 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 as uh, planners and stuff. There's a lot of these people, because, you know, I mean, uh, uh, forced migration uh, mobilizes a huge population pool. Um, they are much more, you know, like, reorganizing in a country like Germany, you know, like, for instance, like you had, you've had um, a couple of um, ex experts, you know, like, who are now refugees, you know, um, have designed, you know, maps For refugees, you know how they map the city Berlin differently in a way that refugees can access, you know, institutions. And these are like efforts that are very, very important and, and significant, but also needed in a in a context um, where the refugee is not has been denied his or her own personhood, you know, his or her own, you know, history, career, ambitions, you know, where that refugee is only that refugee, you know. And I think, um, like you said, I think it's, it's important to consider that there are people in there who have studied these things, you know, or architecture or something, um, before fleeing, and that these people have been going through these experiences, and considering the amount of refugees that exist in Germany, I think it's very certain that there are a number of them who are here who we we could you know simply like engage with you know and learn from um, what they've what challenges they face and what solutions and um, they found for themselves you know but that no one really wants to listen to because um it's not an attractive solution to right and it would challenge also like the power hierarchy like who is the one deciding mm. on how these people can live and should live and it would break away from the status of pure victimhood uh, yeah as we would like bodies those bodies to be yeah mm. Definitely. Well, Sintu John, thank you so much for uh, talking uh, to me today. And uh, I can see so many connections and so many bridges with uh, other conversations mm -hmm. of Archipelago. So I'm, I'm very excited to 
put this one on the on, in this sort of uh, web of, mm -hmm. of other conversations that I hope are useful for everyone. Uh, and uh, so best of luck for both for the, the refugees welcome online platform and uh, and uh, your own research. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>